21. Hot House Plant, forced in germination and growth, then stifled in the close air, growth demands space, therefore, the progress of history has been attended by an advance from smaller to larger marine areas, with a constant increase in those manifold relations between peoples and lands which the water is able to establish. Every great epoch of history has had its own sea, and every succeeding epoch has enlarged its maritime field. The Greek had the Aegean, the Roman the whole Mediterranean, to which the Middle Ages made an addition in the North Sea and Baltic. The modern period has had the Atlantic, and the 20th century is now entering upon the final epoch of the world ocean. The gradual inclusion of this world ocean in the widened scope of history has been due to the expansion of European peoples, who, for the past 20 centuries, have been the most far-reaching agents in the making of universal history, owing to the location and structure of their continent. They have always found the larger outlet in a western sea, in the south the field widened from the Phoenician Sea to the Aegean, then to the Mediterranean, on to the Atlantic, and across it to its western shores, in the north it moved from the quiet Baltic to the tide-swept North Sea and across the North Atlantic, only the South Atlantic brought European ships to the great world highway of the South Seas and gave them the choice of an eastern or western route to the Pacific. Every new voyage in the age of discovery expanded the historical horizon, and every improvement in the technique of navigation has helped to eliminate distance and reduce intercourse on the world ocean to the time scale of the ancient Mediterranean. It would be a mistake, however, to suppose that the larger oceanic horizon has meant a corresponding increase in the relative content and importance of history for the known world of each period. Such an intense concentrated national life has occurred in those little Mediterranean countries in ancient times is not duplicated now. Unless we find a parallel in Japan's recent career in the Yellow Sea Basin, there was something as cosmic in the colonial ventures of the Greeks to the windswept shores of the Crimea or barbarous wilds of Massilia, as in the establishment of English settlements on the brimming rivers of Virginia or the torrid coast of Malacca. Alexander's conquest of the Asiatic rim of the Mediterranean and Rome's political unification of the basin had a significance for ancient times comparable with the Reciprocation of Northern Asia and the establishment of the British Empire for our day. The ocean has always performed one function in the evolution of history, it has provided the outlet for the exercise of redundant national powers. The abundance of opportunity which it presents to these disengaged energies depends upon the size location and other geographic conditions of the bordering lands. These opportunities are limited in an enclosed basin, larger in the oceans, and largest in the northern halves of the oceans, owing to the widening of all land masses towards the north and the consequent contraction of the oceans and seas in the same latitudes. A result of this grouping is the abundance of land in the northern hemisphere, and the vast predominance of water in the southern, by reason of which these two hemispheres have each assumed a distinct role in history. The Northern Hemisphere offers the largest advantages for the habitation of man, and significantly enough, contains a population five times that of the Southern Hemisphere. The latter, on the other hand, with its vast, and broken water areas, has been the great oceanic highway for circumundane exploration and trade. This great water girdle of the South Seas had to be discovered before the spherical form of the Earth could be proven. In the wide territory of the Northern Hemisphere civilization has experienced an uninterrupted development, first in the Old World, because this offered in its large area north of the equator the fundamental conditions for rapid evolution, then it was transplanted with greatest success to North America. The Northern Hemisphere contains, therefore, the zone of greatest historical density, 
from which the track of the South Seas is inconveniently remote. Hence we find in recent decades a reversion to the old east-west path along the southern rim of Eurasia, now perfected by the Suez Canal, and to be extended in the near future around the world by the union of the Pacific with the Caribbean Sea at Panama, so that finally the northern hemisphere will have its own circumundane waterway, along the line of greatest intercontinental intercourse. The size of the ocean as a whole is so enormous, and yet its various subdivisions are so uniform in their physical aspect that their differences of size produce less conspicuous historical effects than their diversity of area would lead one to expect. A voyage across the 177.000 square miles 453.500 square kilometers of the Black Sea does not differ materially from one across the 979.000 square miles 2.509.500 square kilometers of the Mediterranean or a voyage across the 213.000 square miles 547.600 square kilometers of the North Sea, from one across the 300-fold larger area of the Pacific. The ocean does not, like the land, wear upon its surface the evidences and effects of its size, it wraps itself in the same garment of bloom waves or sullen swell, wherever it appears, but the outward cloak of the land varies from zone to zone. The significant anthropogeographical influence of the size of the oceans, as opposed to that of the smaller seas, comes from the larger circle of lands which the former open to maritime enterprise. For primitive navigation, when the sailor crept from headland to headland and from island to island, the small enclosed basin with its close-hugging shores did indeed offer the best conditions. Today, only the great tonnage of ocean-going vessels may reflect in some degree the vast areas they traverse between continent and continent. Coasting craft and ships designed for local traffic in enclosed seas are in general smaller, as in the Baltic, though the enormous commerce of the Great Lakes, which constitute in effect an inland sea, demands immense vessels. The vast size of the oceans has been the basis of their neutrality. The neutrality of the seas is a recent idea in political history. The principle arose in connection with the oceans, and from them was extended to the smaller basins, which previously tended to be regarded as private political domains. Their limited area, which enabled them to be compassed, enabled them also to be appropriated, controlled and policed. The Greek excluded the Phoenician from the Aegean and made it an Hellenic sea. Carthage and Tarantum tried to draw the deadline for Roman merchantmen at the Lycidian Cape, the doorway into the Ionian Sea and thereby involved themselves in the famous Punic Wars. The whole Mediterranean became a Roman sea. The Mare Nostrum, Pompey's fleet was able to police it effectively and to exterminate the pirates in a few months. As Cicero tells us in his oration for the Manilian Law, Venice, by the conquest of the Dalmatian pirates in 991 prepared to make herself Dominatrix Adriatis as she was later called. By the 13th century she had secured full command of the sea spoke of it as, the Gulf, in her desire to stamp it as a mere clausum, maintained in it a powerful patrol fleet under a captain in Golfo, whose duty it was to police the sea for pirates and to seize all ships laden with contraband goods, she claimed and enforced the right of search of foreign vessels, and compelled them to discharge two-thirds of their cargo at Venice, which thus became the clearing house of the whole Adriatic, she even appealed to the Pope for confirmation of her dominion over the sea. Sweden and Denmark strove for a dominu Mary's Balticide, but the Hans towns of northern Germany secured the maritime supremacy in the basin, kept a toll gate at its entrance, and Levi toll or excluded merchant ships at their pleasure. 
a right which after the fall of the Hanseatic power was assumed by Denmark and maintained till 1857. The Narrow Seas, over which England claimed sovereignty from 1299 to 1805, and on which she exacted a salute from every foreign vessel, included the North Sea as far as Stadland Cape in Norway, the English Channel, and the Bay of Biscay down to Cape Finisterre in northern Spain. At the beginning of the 16th century the Indian Ocean was a Portuguese sea. Spain was trying to monopolize the Caribbean and even the Pacific Ocean, but the immense areas of these pelagic fields of enterprise, and the rapid intrusion into them of other colonial powers soon rendered obsolete in practice the principle of the mere clausum, and introduced that of the mere librum. The political theory of the freedom of the sea seems to have needed vigorous support even toward the end of the 17th century. At this time we find writers like Salmasis and Hugo Grotius invoking it to combat Portuguese monopoly of the Indian Ocean as a mere clausum. Grotius in a lengthy dissertation upholds the thesis that, Jurgentium quibus vis ad quos vis liberam es navigatiwanem, and supports it by an elaborate argument and quotations from the ancient poets, philosophers, orators and historians. This principle was not finally acknowledged by England as applicable to the Narrow Seas till 1805. Now, by international agreement, political domain extends only to a one marine league from shore or within cannon range. The rest of the vast water area remains the unobstructed highway of the world. Chapter X Man's Relation to the Water Despite the extensive use which man makes of the water highways of the world, they remain to him highways, places for his passing and repassing not for his abiding, essentially a terrestrial animal. He makes his sojourn upon the deep only temporary, even when as a fisherman he is kept upon the sea for months during the long season of the catch, or when, as whaler, year-long voyages are necessitated by the remoteness and expanse of his field of operations. Yet even this rule has its exceptions. The Morobajan are sea gypsies of the southern Philippines and the Sulu archipelago, of whom Gannett says, their home is in their boats from the cradle to the grave and they know no art but that of fishing, subsisting almost exclusively on seafood. They wander about from shore to shore, one family to a boat, in little fleets of half a dozen sail. Every floating community has its own headman called the Captain Bajan, who embodies all their slender political organization. When occasionally they abandon their rude boats for a time, they do not abandon the sea, but raise their huts on piles above the water on some shelving beach like the ancient lake dwellers of Switzerland and Italy. Only in death do they acknowledge their ultimate connection with the solid land. They never bury their dead at sea, but always on a particular island, to which the funeral cortege of rude outrigged boats moves to the music of the paddle stip. The margin of river, lake and sea has always attracted the first settlements of man because it offered a ready food supply in its animal life and an easy highway for communication. Moreover, a waterfront made a comparatively safe frontier for the small, isolated communities which constituted primitive societies. The motive of protection, dominant in the savage when selecting sites for his villages, led him to place them on the pear-shaped peninsula formed by a river loop, or on an island in the stream or off the coast, or to sever his connection with the solid land, whence attack might come, and provide himself with a boundary waste of water by raising his hut on piles above the surface of lake river or sheltered seacoast, within easy reach of the shore. In this location the occupant of the pile dwelling has found all his needs answered fishing grounds beneath and about his hut, fields a few hundred feet away on shore, easily reached by his dugout canoe, and a place of retreat from a land enemy, whether man or wild beast. Such pile dwellings, 
answering the primary need of protection, have had wide distribution, especially in the tropics, and persist into our own times among retarded peoples living in small, isolated groups too weak for effective defense. They were numerous in the lakes of Switzerland and northern Italy down to the first century of our era, and existed later in slightly modified form in Ireland, Scotland, England and southern Wales. In ancient Ireland they were constructed on artificial islands, raised in shallow spots of lakes or morasses by means of fascines weighted down with gravel and clay, and moored to the bottom by stakes driven through the mass. Such groups of dwellings were called cranogs, they existed in Ireland from the earliest historical period and continued in use down to the time of Queen Elizabeth. In the turbulent 12th century, the warring lords of the soil adopted them as places of refuge and residence. Herodotus describes a pile village of the ancient Thracians in Lake Rages near the Hellespont, built quite after the Swiss type, with trap doors in the floor for fishing or throwing out refuse. Its inhabitants escaped conquest by the Persians under King Darius, and avoided the fate of their fellow tribesmen on land, who were subdued and removed as colonists to Asia. Among Europeans such pile villages belong to primitive stages of development, chiefly to the Stone, Bronze, and Early Iron Ages. They are widely distributed in modern times among retarded peoples, who in this way seek compensation for their social and economic weakness. In South America, the small timid tribe of the native Waras still quite recently built their dwellings on platforms over the water in the river network of the Orinoco Delta and along the swamp coast as far as the Essequibo. These pile villages, Flandata Soproliquacum Venezia, as Vespachus says, suggested to him the name of Venezuela or Little Venice for this coast. A pile village in Joma Lake, a lacustrine expansion in a tributary of the upper Selwyn River, is inhabited by the Incas, apparently an alien colony in Burma. They have added a detail in their floating gardens, rafts covered with soil, on which they raise tomatoes, watermelons and gourds. In Little Lake Moria, located near the upper Lualaba River, a southern headstream of the Congo, Cameroon found numerous pile dwellings, whose owners moved about in dugout canoes and cultivated fields on land, as did their Swiss confreres of 20 centuries ago. Livingstone, in descending from Lake Nyasa by the Shire River, found in the lakelet of Tamalambi, into which the stream widened, similar water huts inhabited by a number of Manganja families, who had been driven from their homes by slave raiders. The slender reeds of the papyrus thicket, lining the shore in a broad band, served as piles, number compensating for the lack of strength. The reeds, bent downward and fastened together into a mat, did indeed support their light dwellings, but heaved like thin ice when the savages moved from hut to hut. The dense forest of papyrus left standing between village and shore effectually screened their retreat, and the abundant fish in the lake provided them with food. In the vast island world of Indonesia, where constant contact with the sea has bred the amphibian Malay race, we are not surprised to find that the typical Malay house is built on piles above the water, and that when the coast Malay is driven inland by newcomers of his own stock and forced to abandon his favorite occupations of trade, piracy and fishing, he takes to agriculture but still retains his seaborne architecture and raises his hut on poles above the ground, beyond the reach of an enemy's spear thrust. The Morosavallout of the southern Sulu archipelago avoid the large volcanic islands of the group, and place their big villages over the sea on low coral reefs. The sandy beaches of the shore hold their cocoa palms, whose nuts by their milk eke out the scanty supply of drinking water, and whose fronds shade the tombs of the dead. The seafaring Malays of the Sunda Islands in thickly populated points of the coast, 
often dwell in permanently inhabited rafts moored near the piled dwellings. Palambong on the lower swampy course of the river Musi has a floating suburb of this sort. It is called the Venice of Sumatra, just as Banjar Mazin, a vast complex of pile and raft dwellings, is called the Venice of Borneo, and Brunei to the north is the Venice of the east. Both these towns are the chief commercial centers of their respective islands. The little town of Kilwaru, situated on a sandbank off the eastern end of Ceyron, seems to float on the sea. So completely has it surrounded and enveloped with pile-built houses the few acres of dry land which form its nucleus. It is a place of busy traffic, the emporium for commerce between the Malay archipelago and New Guinea, farther east in Melanesia, whose coast regions are more or less permeated by Malayan stock and influences. Pile dwellings, both over water and on land form a characteristic feature of the scenery. The village of Soak in Gilvent Bay, on the northern coast of Dutch New Guinea, consists of 30 houses raised on piles above the water, connected with each other by tree trunks but having only boat connection with the shore. Similar villages are found hovering over the lapping waves of Humboldt Bay, all of them recalling with surprising fidelity the prehistoric lake dwellings of Switzerland, the Papuan part of Port Morrisby, on the southern coast of British New Guinea, covers the whole waterfront of the town with pile dwellings. In the vicinity are similar native pile villages, such as Tanobata, Hanueibata, Elevara and Hula, the latter consisting of pile dwellings scattered about over the water in a circuit of several miles and containing about a thousand inhabitants. Here, too, the motive is protection against the attacks of inland mountain tribes, with whom the coast people are in constant war. The Malay fisherman, trader and pirate, with the love of the sea in his blood, by these pile dwellings combines security from his foe and proximity to his familiar field of activity. The same objects are achieved by white traders on the west coast of Africa by setting up their dwellings and warehouses on the old hulks of dismasted vessels, which are anchored for this purpose in the river mouths. They afford some protection against both fever and hostile native, and at the same time occupy the natural focus of local trade seeking foreign exchanges. When advancing civilization has eliminated the need for this form of protection, Water dwellers may survive or reappear in old and relatively overpopulated countries, as we find them universally on the rivers of China and less often in farther India. Here they present the phenomenon of human life overflowing from the land to the streams of the country, because these, as highways of commerce, afford a means of livelihood, even apart from the food supply in their fish, and offer an unclaimed bit of the earth's surface for a floating home. Canton has 250.000 inhabitants living on boats and rafts moored in the river, and finding occupation in the vast inland navigation of the empire, or in the trade which it brings to the port of the Sikiang. Some of the boats accommodate large families, together with modest poultry farms, crowded together under their low bamboo sheds, others are handsome wooden residences ornamented with plants, and yet others are pleasure resorts with their professional singing girls. In the lakes and swamp-bordered rivers of southern Shantong, a considerable fishing population is found living in boats, while the land shows few inhabitants. This population enjoys freedom from taxation and in restricted use of the rivers and fisheries. To vary their scant and monotonous diet, they construct floating gardens on rafts of bamboo covered with earth, on which they plant onions and garlic and which they tow behind their boats. They also raise hundreds of ducks which are trained to go into the water to feed and return at a signal, thus expanding the resources of their river life. Bangkok has all its business district afloat on the Minam River shops, lumber yards, eating houses and merchants' dwellings, 
Even the street vendor's cart is a small boat, paddled in and out among the larger junks. A far more modern type of river dwellers is found in the shanty boat people of the western rivers of the United States. They are the gypsies of our streams, nomads who float downstream with the current, tying up at intervals along the bank of some wooded island or city waterfront, then paying a tug to draw their houseboat upstream. The river furnishes them with fish for their table and driftwood for their cooking stove, and above all is the highway for the gratification of their nomad instincts. There is no question here of trade and overpopulation. Pile dwellings and houseboats are a paltry form of encroachment upon the water in comparison with that extensive reclamation of river swamps and coastal marshes which in certain parts of the world has so increased the area available for human habitation. The water which is a necessity to man may become his enemy unless it is controlled. The alluvium which a river deposits in its floodplain, whether in some flat stretch of its middle course or near the retarding level of the sea, attracts settlement because of its fertility and proximity to a natural highway, but it must be protected by dikes against the very element which created it. Such deposits are most extensive on low coasts at or near the river's mouth. Just where the junction of an inland and oceanic waterway offers the best conditions for commerce, here then is a location destined to attract and support a large population, for which place can be made only by steady encroachment upon the water of both river and sea. Diking is necessitated not only by the demand for more land for the growing population, but also by the constant silting up of the drainage outfalls which increases the danger of inundation while at the same time contributing to the upbuilding of the land. Conditions here institute an incessant struggle between man and nature, but the rewards of victory are too great to count the cost. The construction of sea walls, embankment of rivers, reclamation of marshes, the cutting of canals for drains and passwallies in a water-soaked land, the conversion of lakes into meadow, the rectification of tortuous streams for the greater economy of the silt-made soil altogether constitute the greatest geographical transformation that man has brought about on the Earth's surface. Though the North Sea lowland of Europe has suffered from the serious encroachment of the sea from the 13th to the 16th century, when the Zuiderzee, the Dollar and Jade Day were formed, nevertheless the counter-encroachment of the land upon the water, accomplished through the energy and intelligence of the inhabitants, has more than made good the loss. Between the Elbe and Scald more than 2.000 square miles 5.000 square kilometers have been reclaimed from river and sea in the past 300 years. Holland's success in draining her large inland waters, like the Harlem Mere 70 square miles or 180 square kilometers and the Lake of I, has inspired an attempt to recover 800 square miles 2.050 square kilometers of fertile soil from the borders of the Zuiderzee and reduce that basin to nearly one-third of its present size. One-fourth of the Netherlands lies below the average of high tides, and in 1844 necessitated 9.000 windmills to pump the wastewater into the drainage canals. The Netherlands, with all its external features of man's war against the water, has its smaller counterpart in the 1.200 square miles of reclaimed soil about the head of the wash, which constitute the Fenland of England. Here too are successive lines of sea wall, the earliest of them attributed to the Romans, straightened and embanked rivers, drainage canals, windmills and steam pumps, dikes serving as roads, lines of willows and low moist pastures dotted with grazing cattle. No feature of the Netherlands is omitted. The low southern part of Lincolnshire is even called Holland and Dutch prisoners from a naval battle of 1652 were employed there on the work of reclamation, which was begun on a large scale about this time. 
in the medieval period, the increase of population necessitated measures to improve the drainage and extend the acreage, but there was little company operation among the landowners, and the maintenance of river dikes and sea walls was neglected, till a succession of disasters from flooding streams and invading tides in the 13th and 14th centuries led to severe measures against defaulters. One culprit was placed alive in a breach which his own neglect or criminal cutting had caused, and was built in by way of educating the Fenlanders to a sense of common responsibility. The fight against the water on the coast begins later than that against rivers and swamps in the interior of the land, it demands greater enterprise and courage, because it combats two enemies instead of one, but its rewards are correspondingly greater. The Netherlands by their struggle had acquired not only territory for an additional half-million population, but had secured to themselves a strategic position in the maritime trade of the world. The abundant fertility of river floodplains inevitably attracts population and necessitates some kind of artificial protection against inundation. The most primitive form of this protection is obvious and widespread, restricted in neither locality nor race. When the flood season converts the flat plain of the White Nile below Gondokora 7 degrees inlet into an extensive marsh, countless hills of the white ant emerge over the waters. During the dry season, the ants build up their hills to about 10 feet and then live in safety in the upper section during the flood. They greatly surpass in intelligence and constructive ability the human occupants of the valley, the low and wretched Kitsch tribe of the Dinka Negroes, who like the ants are attracted by the natural vegetation of the flood plain, and who use the ant hills as refuge stations for themselves and their cattle during the flood. Elsewhere in Africa the natives are more intelligent, for flood plain villages built on artificial mounds have existed from the earliest times. Diodorus Siculus tells us that those of ancient Egypt, when the Nile was high, looked like the Cyclades Islands. Similar ones are constructed by the Baratse tribe on the upper Zambezi, the Niger River, rising in the foot of Jalon and Kong Mountains which form a region of heavy rainfall from February to July. Inundates a plain of several thousand square miles for a distance of 250 miles above Timbuktu. Here again the villages of the agricultural Songhoi duplicate those of Egypt built on the same clay mounds, wreathed in the same feathery palms, and communicating with one another only by small boats. The same picture is presented by the Yangtzekian plain during the summer overflow low artificial hills rising from the expanse of muddy water and topped with trees and villages, while sampans lured to their base show the means of communication. In the broad flood plain of the lower Mississippi River, the chronicles of the DeSoto expedition state that the Indian villages visited stood on mounds made by art. The Yazoo River Indians, at the commencement of the 18th century, had their cabins dispersed over the low deltaic land on earth and mounds made by their own hands. There is also strong evidence that some of the works of the mound builders in the bottoms of the midland lower Mississippi served as protected sites for the dwellings of their chiefs. Such meager provisions against inundation suffice for the sparse population characterizing the lower stages of civilization but they must be supplemented for the increasing density of higher stages by the embankment of the stream, to protect also the adjacent fields. Hence the process of confining rivers within dikes goes back into gray antiquity. Those of the Po and its tributaries were begun before the political history of the Lombardy Plains commenced. Strabo mentions the canals and dikes of Venetia, whereby a part of the country was drained and rendered tillable. The main Po has been embanked for centuries as far up as Cremona a distance of 600 miles, and the Adige to Verona, but the most gigantic dike system in the world is that of the Hoanho, by which a territory the size of England is won from the water for cultivation, 
the cost of protecting the far spread crops against the autumn floods has been a large annual expenditure and unceasing watchfulness, and this the Chinese have paid for 2,000 years, but have not always purchased immunity. Year by year the Yellow River mounts higher and higher on its silt bed above the surrounding lowlands, increasing the strain on the banks and the area of destruction. When its fury is uncaged, the flood of 1887 covered an area estimated at 50.000 square miles, wiped out of existence a million people, and left a greater number prey to famine. So the fertile Chengdu plain of the Minimum River, supporting 4 millions of people on its 2.500 square miles of area, owes its prosperity to the embanking and irrigating works of the engineer heroes, Li Qing and his son, who lived before the Christian era. On the temple in their honor in the city of Quanxian is Li Qing's motto, incised in gold, dig the bed deep, keep the banks low. For 21 centuries these instructions have been carried out. The stone dikes are kept low to permit a judicious amount of flooding for fertilization, and every year 5 to 6 feet of silt are removed from the artificial channel of the minimum. To this work the whole population of the Chengdu Plain contributes. See map page 8. In such organized struggles to reduce the domain of the water and extend that of the dry land, the material gain is not all, more significant by far is the power to company operate that is developed in a people by a prolonged war against overwhelming sea or river, a common natural danger, constantly and even regularly recurring, necessitates for its resistance a strong and sustained union, that draws men out of the barren individualism of a primitive people, and forces them without halt along the path of civilization. It brings a realizing sense of the superiority of common interests over individual preferences, strengthens the national bond, and encourages voluntary subservience to a law. This is the social or political gain, but this is not all. The danger emanating from natural phenomena has its discoverable laws, and therefore leads to a first empirical study of winds, currents, seasonal rainfall and the whole science of hydraulics, with deep national insight. Th.